Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Sin breaches our fellowship with the Lord and stifles the ongoing sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit, so we always need to make sure that we're in fellowship, keep short accounts on sin in our life so that we are in a position where God the Holy Spirit is actively involved in promoting spiritual growth in our life uh, through his word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather to study your word, that as we study your word, God the Holy Spirit is active in our lives to help us to uh, remember these doctrines, to correlate them with other doctrines, building uh, line upon line and precept upon precept. We have your completed revelation, which is sufficient for all things, and that as we come to understand it, that, that it, through the Holy Spirit, becomes real in our own lives, and we... Uh, then are able to live from that framework of of wisdom that you have revealed to us, that that body of doctrine that once it becomes part of our own makeup, uh, becomes a source of wisdom for us. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, help us to have a little better understanding of how to study, understand, read your word, and how we have gotten to where we are today in our understanding of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of announcements. One is Saturday's family night, 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We're showing a film called Squanto, and if you don't know the story of Squanto, it's a great story, a great story. The film isn't, surprise, surprise, 100% accurate, because it's from Hollywood, but it's pretty good. And we'll talk a little bit about the real story, and part of what I'm trying to do is set things up for Thanksgiving, which comes in, golly, less than two months. Can you believe it? And so just to give some uh, information there, I'm doing some research on the side on uh, the pilgrims and their voyage here and how all of that began. So uh, this is just trying to develop a, the understanding of this. Now, family night is not just for people that have families, but it's for the family of West Houston Bible Church, just in case anybody doesn't understand that. Another announcement is that in January, when uh, I'm gone to Kiev, part of the time, we're, we're, we finally pulled together something that Bruce and I have been working on for about four months with uh, Ariel Ministries, is that uh, Ariel has been trying to steal our video guy back there to video 
uh, a lot of Arnold's material so they can have it for future generations. And um, Bruce doesn't get on an airplane very readily. <laughs> He's cracking up back there. So we, we were thinking that we could maybe bring Arnold here, just that way he doesn't even have to pack up the equipment, and Arnold could teach these things from this pulpit. And then it occurred to me that Arnold was also teaching a couple of modules for Chafer Seminary, and we thought we could just kill three birds with one stone and have Arnold come during the time I'm gone to Kiev, and he will be teaching what is a graduate seminary course on uh, the, a Jewish view of Jesus, a Jew's view of Jesus and the Gospels, which is excellent. Uh, he did it in about five hours or eight hours, maybe, at Preston City Bible Church a few years ago. But this is a 20, uh, will be a 28-hour course. So it's going to be rather intensive, and it'll be a third, probably, probably, we haven't finalized exactly yet, but we're real close. We got the dates. And it'll probably be a Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday morning. The Saturday morning will be a five-hour session because so, we have to get 28 hours into three weeks. So this is typical for those of you who aren't aware. These, these are the kinds of things, if Ike were here, this is what they do at Dallas Seminary. They'll often have modules where they come in. They'll have like three Saturdays in a row where they have class for eight hours, and that will knock out a semester course. So that's the kind of thing that it's a little different from our normal Bible class, but then the objective's a little different. But um, you're not taking it for course credit, and you can get the DVD, so you can come in and go out when you can. You don't have to feel like if I, you're not there the first hour, you can't listen to the second hour. So we'll talk more about that, but that's going to be exciting. And then I'll be teaching a course for Chafer Seminary from this pulpit beginning at the end of January on a history of doctrine. So that will go from like 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. So we've got some fun things coming up. All right. We're talking about dispensations the last several weeks as sort of a side study, topical study, in preparation for what we will hit in in uh, chapter 8. Come on in, Jeff. The door over there is open in case you need to work in the back. Um, we are uh, preparing for this because this is so crucial. Some of the stuff that's going on in chapter 7 of Hebrews and chapter 8 really relates to what amounts to the foundations or the undergirding of dispensational thought. And one of that element is that there are things that change between dispensations and things that don't change. And what we have at the cross is a change of law, and a change of law and a change of priesthood as a result of the ascension of Christ means a change of covenant. And so all these things are tied together, and so we're stepping back just to look at dispensations. We've gone through a lot of things related to dispensations, and now we're at a key area, which is which we've looked at the last, I think, two classes on interpretation. And we're using the definition from D.L. Cooper. Uh, David Cooper was a, I believe he was a Jewish believer. Uh, he was Arnold's pastor, mentored Arnold. And uh, this is really a good definition that he wrote. Why we reinvent the wheel. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, 
take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. I went through this in detail last time. I'm not going to do that again. The idea is that unless there's clear contextual reasons to take a statement in some sort of figurative sense, take it in a literal sense. And literal does not mean that you ignore figures of speech or idioms or anything of that nature, but those are contextually indicated and usually contextually supplied, and you can document these things by comparison with other parts of Scripture so that it's not the interpreter that just looks at something and goes, well, if that's an idiom, then uh, it would make more sense to me, so I'm just going to assign this and say that must be an idiom and it must mean X. And the interpreter is deciding the meaning of the passage and not the one who writes it. And that's a problem you get into with a lot of Bible interpretation over the over the centuries and down through down through history. And we've seen that among evangelicals, that most evangelicals, especially those on the conservative side, would say they believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. The problem is that there's a large chunk of evangelicals who don't consistently apply a literal, plain hermeneutic to uh, every part of Scripture, primarily prophecy. When it comes to prophecy, they just sort of jump into this allegorizing, spiritualizing thing. And Dr. Ryrie, who wrote an excellent book on dispensationalism a number of years ago, identified three things that are the essence of dispensationalism. And so some have called this essentialist dispensationalism. And these three things are that is the sine qua non, or without which nothing, the essence of, of dispensationalism are uh, a literal plain hermeneutic that leads to a, when it's consistently applied, a distinction between Israel and the church, and that God's, uh, the, uh, that the overarching theme in Scripture is the glory of God. Now we've gone through that. In the past, now covenant theology and other theological systems that are part of what we call replacement theology do not consistently apply a literal interpretation. Well, question may come for some of you, well, how did we get that? How did that develop? How did we get into this non-literal interpretation? And so last time I started a little, another little side uh, trail, another rabbit trail on the history of interpretation. So I just want to review that, make sure everybody's got the first uh, five and a half points, and then we'll keep going. First point was that over the centuries, Bible students have used various approaches to interpret the Bible, literal, allegorical, uh, traditional. By traditional, that is, you think you know what the passage says. Now let's go see what the body of theologians, what the church, this would be a more of a Roman Catholic approach. Let's see what the Orthodox Church Fathers say that it means, and then we'll interpret it in light of them. Uh, rationalistic interpretation, where if it doesn't make sense to our limited reason, then of course we have to uh, get rid of it. Thomas Jefferson did that. He had his own version of the Bible that got rid of all of the miracles and everything supernatural. Subjective interpretation of the Scripture, mystical interpretation of the Scriptures. You have all kinds of people wanting to come up with hidden codes in the secret meaning of 
of the scripture. Back in the 19th century, it was uh, vogue to call, you had lots of books written that the, the secret to the Christian life. Whenever you read anything, the secret to, you know, right away that hmm, something's kind of odd here. Uh, they may be right, but, you know, it's usually a co- code that they're coming up with something that they saw and nobody else has seen. So we have various approaches to interpreting the Bible, number one. Number two, the Bible gives us examples of how the Bible interprets itself. So we ought to go to the text and see how, if Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, how did subsequent writers interpret Moses? And if David wrote the Psalms and Solomon wrote Proverbs, how did subsequent writers interpret them? How do Isaiah and Jeremiah Daniel interpret their contemporaries and interpret earlier writing in Scripture. And so there's a lot of examples within Scripture to how people interpreted God's voice. And we understand that Adam pretty much understood God literally. Uh, Noah certainly did. When God said to build an ark, he wasn't thinking about constructing a spiritual bomb shelter. Uh, when uh, you get to no, uh, Moses being given instructions to build the tabernacle, he doesn't go off into a mountain and just contemplate his navel. Uh, they, they interpret God literally and put these things into practice. So you also have samples of prophecy that is fulfilled literally, and one that I mentioned last time was 1 Kings 13, when you have an unnamed prophet come to uh, Jeroboam I as he's beginning to, to establish this new religion in the northern kingdom, and he builds this altar and he's sacrificing these sacrifices, and this unnamed prophet comes up and announces that there will be a king in a couple of hundred years named Josiah in the south who's going to come, and he will uh, sacrifice his false priests on this altar and then destroy the altar. And and the sign of that future destruction will be the altar is going to be destroyed right now, and that happened. And so uh, <clears throat> we know that 200 years later there was a king by the name of Josiah. He wasn't named something like Josiah. He was named Josiah, and he did exactly what this prophet said he would do. So that clearly indicates literal fulfillment. Third thing I noted was when the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile. Now, that begins about 536 B.C., but it's it's a small return. I mean, they they only come back with about 5,000 the first time. That's Shoot, that's not the population of uh, many small towns in Texas. And they don't come back with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands uh, of Jews at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Most of the Jews are saying, well, I built a new life. I got kids and grandkids here in Babylon and Egypt, and I don't really want to go back home. Uh, that's, that's a real mess. There's, there's criminals and everything's a mess and everything's been torn down. So it took a long time to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and to rebuild the land. But in Nehemiah 8, which takes place in about 442 or so uh, BC, almost 100 years after they returned to the land, we have an example of Ezra reading the Old Testament, and people understood it, understood it literally. And then we get into a period, because that happens just about at the end of the Old Testament canonical period. Just by by 440, 430, Malachi is gets his message, and and that's it. That's the curtain comes down, and there's no more revelation 
after that, and you just have this gap of about 400 years between Malachi and uh, the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. So you have 400 years of silence, and this is the intertestamental period. And during that time, the Jews were trying to figure out how to avoid God's judgment, and they went from a literal understanding of the Scripture to a hyper-literalism, which some call a letterism, in the sense that instead of just paying attention to the normal meaning of a sentence, they got to the point where they were paying attention to every letter and every word, and not in the sense that Jesus says no jot or tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled, but in the sense that every letter must have some meaning, and so they began to do things with numerology, like assigning numbers to letters, and then they would figure out what those number codes meant, and they would do other things of that nature, and it led to a... It also it, it led to mysticism in one direction, and in another direction it led to setting up a, a hyper uh, view of the law, which developed into the legalism, uh, Phariseeism. And that's what Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians when he talks about the, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Uh, letterism focused on creating meaning out of each letter of the text, as opposed to uh, the meaning of the sentences and the words and their normal normal flow. Fourth thing I pointed out was that by the time of Christ, the Pharisees had developed an excessive dependence on uh, sort of a hyper-literalism, and, which led to a legalism and a false interpretation of the law. So those are the first four points. And then we come to point five, where I want to develop a little bit about what was happening during the intertestamental period between... That, that what was happening with the Jews outside of the land is very important. What are they doing out of the land? You have millions of Jews. You probably had 10 million Jews at this time in history, and they're scattered all over the Roman Empire. Well, what became the, well, the Roman Empire part of that time, but uh, all over the Middle East. They're, they're scattered from Egypt to Babylon and, and uh, what we now call Asia Minor or Turkey, and they're everywhere, and they're being influenced by those cultures just like we are, they're being influenced by Babylonian thought and Egyptian thought and Greek thought primarily. And so they began to develop allegorical interpretation. Last time I used as an example Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, which talks about the nations coming to Jerusalem, going to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and how this is understood and applied by by the early church in an allegorical manner to refer to the church. And how in the world did they get from a literal interpretation to this allegorical interpretation? So first point has to do with the first thing I want to talk about is the result of the influence of Greek culture on Jewish thought. And this is because there was a rise in allegorical interpretation and the development of allegorical interpretation took place in the 5th, 4th, 3rd centuries B.C. 5th century is the golden age of Athens. This is when you have uh, Aristotle, Plato and Aristotle, but there and the development of the intellectual, philosophical, the, the school of philosophy in Athens and, and uh they were very intellectual and somewhat embarrassed by the old legends that had been written down by Homer and by Hesiod. 
And so they, they wanted to figure out a way to reinterpret Homer and Hesiod because they were rather embarrassed by the anthropomorphic antics of the, of the gods. You know, the Zeus comes down and takes on the form of a man and chases young women and rapes them and gets them pregnant. And this certainly isn't the kind of ethical standard that Plato or Aristotle wanted to hold up for young people. So there must be a, another meaning to these stories than the literal meaning. And so they began to develop a solution to the Homeric problem. And I have a quote here from Heraclitus in the first century B.C. wrote in a work called The Homeric Problem, uh, his interpretation of, of some of these uh, stories. And in terms of these interpreting the sexual antics of Aphrodite, Zeus, and Ares, he writes, quote, The ribald laughter of the gods at the hapless pair, that would be Aphrodite and her lover Ares, signifies their joy at the cosmic harmony that results from the union of love, Aphrodite, and strife, Ares, who's the god of war. See, there's no literal individuals there. It's just This is just a story about how uh, this they 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 picture for us cosmic it almost sounds like a modern Methodist preacher doesn't it? Oh, I shouldn't say that. That's not tolerant. Um, the passage he says can also be interpreted metallurgically. Fire, represented by Hephaestus, unites iron Aries with beauty Aphrodite in the blacksmith's art. So there's no literal meaning to the stories of Homer. There's no literal Troy. There's no literal Achaia. There's no literal battle. It's just, this is just now taken to be all, all some kind of symbolism, idealism, metaphor. And so the center of interpretation shifts from the meaning of the author to the interpreter. The interpreter decides what something means. And this, um, this develops among the Greeks. You have uh, Plato earlier had d- developed this, and this fit with his whole emphasis on the ideal over uh, the material. So allegorical interpretation develops, and this has its influence throughout the Greek Empire. And, of course, at that time, Egypt, uh, af- after Alexander, remember the Greek Empire split among the four generals. Cassander up took Thrace and Macedonia, and uh, Lysimachus got the... Got the east in Seleucus, the Seleucids got the, uh, got Antioch, Syria, Turkey, and the Ptolemies got, uh, Egypt. And so the Ptolemies are Greek, and the last in the line of the Ptolemies was Cleopatra. She was a Greek, she wasn't Egyptian, she did not have dark skin, she wasn't a dark skinned African, like, you know, we get reinterpretation of history today trying to say that. She was a Greek, and she was a descendant from one of Alexander's uh, generals, and so that whole culture, the intellectual culture of Alexandria, the, uh, had the great library in Alexandria, is shaped by the Greek intellectual thought, the influence of, of Plato and, and Aristotle and others. So you have a large Jewish community there, and this Jewish community is picking up all of these ideas, and many of the Jewish scholars and thinkers are influenced by Greek thought, and they become enamored with Greek thought. 
happens today. You get a lot of conservative Bible scholars go off to Aberdeen or Edinburgh or Oxford or Cambridge to get their doctrine theology and then come back and teach at places like Dallas Seminary or, or Talbot or uh, theological, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School or any of these places. And they go off there and get... They walk around the ivory towers and the old walls of Oxford and Cambridge and Edinburgh and just get absolutely enamored with all of the old stuff in these great European minds, and they pick up a lot of uh, garbage changer theology and come back and teach it in the classroom, and this is how these schools get uh, their theology becomes diluted. Well, that's what was happening then. And so by the first century, you have a guy come along by the name of Philo, and Philo was born in 20 B.C. and dies in uh, A.D. 54. He's a Jewish philosophy. He really liked his Jewish heritage. He liked Moses, thought he had a number of good things to say in the Mosaic Law, but he just wasn't quite as erudite as, as uh, Plato and Aristotle. So uh, Philo thought that he could come up with a way to synthesize Moses and Plato so that they could make Moses say pretty much what Plato and and other Greek philosophers were saying, and then Moses would be a lot brighter, and his IQ would go up 50 or 60 points. So he began to seek out, come up, came up with this idea that there's a meaning in the Torah that is beyond the meaning of the letters, that's beyond the literal meaning, and that if you can just dig down or contemplate it enough, you can come up with the mystical depths concealed beneath the letters of Scripture. And we remember in when you get away from a literal interpretation, the interpreter determines the meaning of the passage, not the writer, not authorial intent. So Philo came up with this idea that there were two levels of meaning. There's the literal meaning that corresponds to the body, and there's the spiritual meaning that corresponds to the soul. The milk of the word is literal. The meat of the word is spiritual, and the milk of the word is just the surface, historical, normal meaning, but that just leads to an immature understanding of reality. If you really want to go anywhere spiritually, if you want to go to maturity, then you have to understand the hidden meaning, and remember there's no connection between the hidden meaning and the literal, historical, grammatical meaning, but it's the hidden meaning that leads to greater spiritual understanding. So I've got a couple of examples here for you. In Genesis 2.21, God uh, took, had taken uh, Eve out of the, the, taken, made the woman out of the side of the man and created her. And uh, Adam says, this is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this is Philo's interpretation of that. He says, this is what that passage really means. That, that is to say, he, God, filled up that external sense which exists according to habit, leading it on to energy and extending it as far as flesh and the whole outward and visible surface of the body. Can anybody explain to me what that means? Okay. So you got to have a little extra hidden meaning to figure Philo out. Okay, so there's this. It's not just the literal meaning that, that this is how God created the woman from the original man. Well, later on in that passage, in uh, Genesis 2.24, uh, Moses writes, Therefore a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now Philo says of this, uh, 
On account of the external sensation, the mind, when it has become enslaved to it, that is to external sensations, shall leave both its father, the God of the universe, and the mother of all things, namely the virtue and wisdom of God. See what he's, he's making a moral point here. He says when you get too caught up in emotion and sensation, what you're going to do is you're going to leave your father, which is uh, the God of the universe, and the mother, which is wisdom, and cleave to and become united to external sensations and is dissolved into external sensations so that the two become one flesh and one passion. In other words, you just become overwhelmed by... Uh, feeling good. But that's what he's saying. That's what the passage means. It's totally, see, it's not connected at all to the literal grammatical meaning. So everything, and it can mean whatever it means to whoever is contemplating their navel long enough to come up with the meaning. So Dwight Pentecost, who was great, he's still a professor at Dallas. He's 93 or 4 now. I think he's going to stay alive to the last, and he's going to be the last Pentecost. But, um, he wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation on, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, Last Things. Uh, what's the name of, uh, I can't believe I blanked on this. Dwight Pentecost, uh, wait, what? Things to, come. Things to Come. Yes, that's right. Classic work, basic. One of the first books I ever bought on understanding dispensationalism and prophecy. And Pentecost writes in Things to Come, the quote, the allegorical method was not born out of the study of the scripture, but rather out of a desire to unite Greek philosophy and the word of God. It did not come out of a desire to present the truths of the word, but to pervert them. It was not the child of orthodoxy, but of heterodoxy. So what happens is the early church you have the jews who are living in who are living in um jews are living in alexandria and they have picked up greek ideas and they are wedding the bible to greek ideas these are the jews and then when you go past the period of the first century okay past the first century into the second century the period between 100 and 200 then the early church, after the last apostle died, starts trying to figure out, without direct apostolic guidance, what this thing means. And there's a time period there. A lot of people say, well, they, they studied at the feet of the apostles. They should have had it squared away. No, they didn't. Don't get caught up into that trap. Uh, you read most people who wrote in the second century, and you'll think you have to get baptized in order to get saved. They were, they had, they were trying to figure it all out. And so they started square one. That's what we're going to be doing next year in history of doctrine is how did they go through, how did man come to understand, the leaders of the church come to understand this, the, these doctrines as time went by through the, through the continuum of the, of the church age. So they start wrestling with all kinds of issues, but fundamental is going to be issues related to canon. What's our ultimate authority? What books are worth dying for? What books aren't? What books contain truth and what books don't? And how do we know what God means? And so you had two schools of thought develop. One held to literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, 
and the other school held to allegorical interpretation. Guess where the school that held to allegorical interpretation was located? Alexandria. Go figure. It's almost like there's a connection. So they are influenced by Philo and the others, and you have uh, one of the early leaders in that particular church was a guy by the name of uh, Pantanus. He died around 190. He influenced Clement of Alexandria, who was a major figure, influential figure in the early church. He's, his dates are 155 to 216. And then the guy he really influences is a guy by the name of Origen. That's spelled O-R-I-G-E-N. And Origen is probably the brightest intellect in early Christianity. It's unfortunate that his bulb often got turned on on the wrong side of the tracks, but he had a, he was the most influential. He did some great things re- related to the text and preserving the text of Scripture. He created something called a hexapla, which had three different old Greek translations of the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac versions, all put together in one volume, and so that's a great benefit to scholars today in doing textual criticism. But he also introduces allegorical interpretation and legitimizes and systematizes it for the church. And this, within another 200 years, Origen will dominate the Middle Ages. His view of interpretation, we still have problems with it today. So that's one of the reasons it's, it's so important. Bernard Ram, who wrote a classic book called Protestant Biblical Interpretation, said of the this period that the Syrian school, that's the other school. The, the, I, I spoke about two schools. One was in Alexandria, north, northern uh, Egypt. The other was in Antioch of Syria. And in Antioch of Syria, you had the conservatives, the literalists, the, those who held to a literal plain interpretation. And so Bernard Ram comments that the Syrian school fought Origen in particular as the inventor of the allegorical method and maintained the primacy of literal and historical interpretation. Joseph Trigg wrote the, the classic biography on origin, it's scholarly biography today, and Joseph Trigg said of origin, the fundamental criticism of origin beginning during his own lifetime was that he used allegorical interpretation to provide a specious justification for reinterpreting Christian doctrine in terms of Platonic philosophy. Trust me, you may not really grasp all the implications of that, but that bothers us to this very day in evangelical Christianity. Some of the things that happened in that second century just ripples, they're a tidal wave for a thousand years, but they still ripple, uh, ripple today. Okay, so Origen actually held to a threefold meaning of Scripture. Earlier, Philo had one body and soul. Okay, Origen's going to do him one better. He's going to say man's made up of body, soul, and spirit. So you have three levels of meaning in the text. The normal literal meaning, the obvious meaning, is related just to your normal physical bodily life, and it really isn't going to take you very far. Uh, 
the soul meaning is the moral meaning of the text. And then for those who really have insights into the word, there's the spiritual meaning. Remember, the moral meaning and the spiritual meaning won't have anything to do with the literal historical grammatical meaning. It's like I can read the, read the story and then just come up with whatever little uh, moral story that I want to make out of the, out of the partic- particular text. And so it leads to some extremely damaging views of the nature of the church and the nature of Israel. And, of course, that in turn affects the whole view of prophecy. Uh, Arnold, I mean, Ronald uh, DeProse, in his book on Israel on page 878, that's not 8,700, it's 8, no, excuse me, it's 87288, a hyphen dropped out, 8788. He says of origin, he motivated this view by appealing to the principle of divine inspiration. That means he said, God told me this. See, it's that mysticism thing cropping up again. You know, I went off into my closet and prayed for eight hours last night, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He motivated this view by appealing to the principle of divine inspiration and by affirming that often statements made by the biblical writers are not literally true and that many events presented as historical are inherently impossible. See, they just didn't understand enough about what happened in the Old Testament, and they read some of these stories about a worldwide flood and about Lot's wife being turned to salt and about the walls falling down around Jericho, and they're going, I'm not sure about that. So they say it's not, it can't really be historical, must be impossible, so there must be another meaning to the text other than the literal meaning. So then he says, thus only simple believers will limit themselves to the literal meaning of the text. So this comes uh, from origin. Uh, Trigg goes on to say in his biography on origin that origin made allegory the dominant method of biblical interpretation down to the end of the Middle Ages. It took no genius to recognize that such allegory was a desperate effort to avoid the plain meaning of the text. And that indeed is how Origen viewed it. So allegorical interpretation is introduced into, into Christianity. Origen's dates are from 185 to 254. So he dies 75 years before the Council of Nicaea. So he introduces allegorical interpretation. Seventy-five years later, Constantine legitimizes Christianity. And then about 75 years later, you have Augustine, who is the next major intellectual powerhouse in the early church. And Augustine just picks up origin, lock, stock, and barrel and throws out a literal interpretation and a literal millennium and almost single-handedly because of the uh, power of his writings makes allegorical interpretation amillennialism the orthodox doctrine of Christianity which dominates the Roman Catholic Church throughout all the Middle Ages all the way up up to the Reformation and beyond. 
So what, what do we conclude about Origen? Number one, Origen's views gained wide acceptance in the early church. It just, everybody seems to want to find a special secret meaning. Everybody wants to find some kind of uh, insight, breakthrough, new idea in the Scriptures. The body of do- doctrine that's in the Scripture basically hasn't changed in 2,000 years. I think a lot of people want to find something new there. There's not a whole lot that's new that's there. I think Solomon said something like that. Second point, along with Constantine's legalization of Christianity and Augustine's promotion of allegory, the death knell sounded for literal interpretation. You go back into the early church in the 2nd century and 3rd century, they are kilias. That's the uh, Greek word for a thousand. It's comparable to millennium. They believe in a literal future thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. But after allegorical interpretation comes in, they just get wiped out. They, They just are overwhelmed in the flood of that. So the third, the idea of a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ on the earth is lost. So if, if the literal physical kingdom is lost, then the kingdom, all this kingdom stuff in the Bible must be talking about the church and must be talking about some spiritual form of the kingdom, and Jesus is reigning in our hearts. And this, it's unbelievable how this affects so much for the next 2,000 years. I mean, we're still being affected by it. In, in many different ways, and because it takes on weird permutations when it gets picked up by secular, secularists like Karl Marx, and Marxism borrows from these kinds of ideas, and, and you have all kinds of people trying to set up a kingdom on the earth or realize it fully and all of this kind of thing. So origin, that's my fourth point, origin is still a force to contend with today this allegorical interpretation. But this really impacts his view of prophecy, and that impacts his view of Israel. And let me see here. In terms of prophecy, uh, Trigg writes, that according to Origen, the trials and tribulations the world must endure before the second coming. Okay, we're going through a literal interpretation of Revelation on Sunday morning. So all these things that we read about there, according to Origen, wouldn't be literal. These trials and tribulations symbolize the difficulties the soul must overcome before it is worthy of union with the Lagos. What is union with the Lagos code phrase for? Salvation. Okay? Work salvation coming in here, anybody? Okay. That's what's happening. It says, the imminence of the second coming refers to the imminent possibility for each individual of death. Jesus coming, the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment is really, he's saying that just means you could die at any moment. Anyway. Perhaps more radically, he says, the two men laboring in a field, one of whom is taken, the other left when the Messiah comes, represent good and bad influences on a person's will which fare differently when the Logos is revealed to that person. See, it's like, if you, now if you've never sat under a pastor who was teaching from an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, then you really haven't been blessed. Because you keep reading your Bible going, well, how did he get that out of there? It's sort of like sitting in my 10th grade poetry class at Bel Air High School.
Deprosi comments, an attitude of contempt towards Israel had become the rule by Origen's time. The new element has his own view of Israel. It's his perception of them as manifesting no elevation of thought. Israel's no longer important or relevant. So if Israel isn't important and relevant and they killed Jesus, what's the cultural attitude towards the Jews going to be now? See how that provides the soil out of which anti-Semitism is going to thrive in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Middle Ages. Deprosi goes on to comment, it follows that the interpreter must always posit a deeper or higher meaning for prophecies relating to Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, Judah, and Jacob, which, he affirms, are not being understood by us in a carnal sense. That's what Origen would say. We don't take them naturally. So every time you read Jerusalem, it's really code word for the church. Every time you read Judah or Israel, it's code word for the church. Temple is code word for the, ch- for, for the church, the spiritual life, these kinds of things. So he concludes, Deprosi does, in Origen's un- understanding, the only positive function of physical Israel was that of being a type of spiritual Israel. The promises were not made to physical Israel because... She was unworthy of them and incapable of understanding them. Thus, Origen effectively disinherits physical Israel. And this is what's going to cover the, the, set the tone for the whole Middle Ages and their attitudes towards, towards the Jews. Now, Origen's interpretations accepted by Jerome and by uh, Augustine, and it becomes a standard theology up to the Reformation. Now, when the Reformation comes along, well, you're going to start seeing some changes, but it's slow. Augustine comes along in 354 to 430. 354 to 430, we have uh, Augustine, or as the Catholics call him, Augustine. I've told you that before since I went to Dallas Seminary, which was Protestant, and learned Augustine, and then went to University of St. Thomas here in Houston to study philosophy, and we studied a lot of Augustine. They call him Augustine. I'm, I've got, I'm schizo. One phrase, I say Augustine. The next one, I say Augustine, because I have a Protestant and Roman Catholic education, so I'm really confused. The period, let's just summarize Augustine real quick. He said, number one, the period of the book of Revelation began at the first advent, when Satan was bound and cast out of the hearts of true Christians and their reign over him began. Now, did you catch that? That's really important, just the opposite of what you believe. According to Augustine, the, the book of Revelation begins at the first advent. It's, it's, it's a historicist view, lays the whole book down over history. But actually, he said, at, at that time, Satan was bound at the cross, and cast out of the hearts of true Christians, and the reign of the church over Satan began. He's bound right now in the bottomless pit, right? Second thing, he said that the beast of Revelation represents the whole world. The beast is the whole world. Third, he said the first resurrection is that of dead souls to spiritual life. He makes the first resurrection basically regeneration. The first resurrection is that of dead souls to spiritual life. A resurrection continued in every true conversion throughout the period. Fourth, he said that the thousand years is a symbolic expression of completeness 
uh, appropriately indicating the entire period of the Messiah's reign spiritually in our hearts. So fifth, this period is to be followed by a new persecution of the saints under Antichrist. Then there will be a general judgment. There's no literal millennium. That's basically our millennialism. If you're a Presbyterian, that's what you believe. If you are a Wesleyan, a Methodist, that's what you believe. If you are a Catholic, that's what you believe. That's what, what everybody believes. So there's nothing significant about the Jews. Now, this dominates the Middle Ages until the Re- Reformation comes. But what's important to understand on interpretation is that first you have a return to a literal understanding of interpretation by the late 1400s. You change your interpretation, then what happens? You have a new system of interpretation to take to the text, and what happens? It means something different. Interpretation always precedes theology. When you had a new interpretation, joined with a resurrection of of training in Greek and Hebrew, all of a sudden you have Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Bullinger and many, many others coming to an understanding of Scripture that is different from the Roman Catholic understanding of Scripture. Change your interpretive scheme, you change your theology. And then by the second generation of the Reformation, by the because le- the first generation's fighting the big battle of sola scriptura and sola fide. Sola scriptura by scripture alone, sola fide by faith alone. And it's not till the second half of the 1500s that they've won most of those battles and they began to work out the implications of a literal interpretation to other areas of theology. And by the time you get into the the beginning of the 1600s, you have many, many uh, Reformed people, Calvinists, are coming to a premillennialism. And you have people that come to America, like, uh, first off, Richard Mather comes to America and he, in the uh, 1630s, and he's a premillennialist, and he has a son, and because God's blessed him so much, like a good Puritan, he names his son Increase. And you have Increase Mather. And uh, Increase Mather was one of the judge, was a great guy. I mean, these, these people were so much better educated than PhDs from Harvard today are educated by the time they went to Harvard, okay? I mean, they, they knew more about Latin, Hebrew, and Greek before they started college than Dallas Seminary graduates know when they get out of seminary, okay? That's how, that's how well-educated they were because they had a value on the word. And Increase Mather was one of the judges in the Salem Witch Trial. See, everybody wants to go to the Salem Witch Trials if there's some bad thing. There were only about seven or eight people killed in the Salem Witch Trial. When you had witch trials in England and in France and in Spain at that time of our history, 30 and 40,000 were being killed. We go, oh, eight got killed. Well, or 15 got killed. It was a very small number. Yeah, well, well, you as opposed to fifteen thousand or thirty thousand, no, there were there were. That's not as extreme as you know the crucible wants you to think it is. That's just anti-Christian propaganda. Uh, you had uh, Increase Mather and then his son Cotton Mather, and they were all premillennialists. They all under, 
understood, and they're going back to literal interpretation. That lays the groundwork for the foundation of a lot of American American Christianity. And out of that soil developed dispensationalism by the early early 19th century. Okay, we've got a little time to get into. Now, I'm not even going to get into the next area, because the next area I want to deal with all hangs together, and that's in how the New Testament is used, uh, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. That's really important because I'll take the last five minutes to kind of explain what's happened. You had literal interpretation, which is the foundation of dispensationalism. And then over here you had the allegorical interpretation. Well, what happens in the 70s, because in the 70s you already had young people who were baby boomers who were being influenced by what I'll call proto-postmodernism, you know, let's all get together and and uh, sing Kumbaya together and all just revel in our joint experience in Jesus, whatever that is. But the last thing we want to do is put any kind of doctoral definite, doctrinal definiteness on what it means to be united in Jesus. Uh, they ignore the fact that Ephesians 4, Paul says, it's the unity of the faith. It's not the unity of our the fact that we've all had a common experience in Jesus. It's a unity of doctrine. Therefore, you better be teaching doctrine. Well, you had these movements in, on, in both camps that we just, we, uh, covenant theologians and dispensationalists shouldn't be shooting at each other. We all need to be loving each other. We just all need to get together. So these scholars got together and tried to, and they invented a new hermeneutic to try to blend the two. And it's called complementary hermeneutics. And this was the brainchild of, uh, two, two, uh, uh, seminary professors at Dallas Seminary, my generation, I did some doctoral work under one of them in a course on dispensationalism. And we spent the whole course really dealing with interpretation because in his view, that's really what dispensationalism, that's where the battle was. A dispensationalism wasn't a theological system, it was a system of hermeneutics. And, and it really didn't have anything to do with Ryrie's three essentials. Because that's just, you know, that's just modernist thinking to think that you've got to identify certain criteria to make you a dispensationalist or a non-dispensationalist. You know, how, 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 how 18th century. We don't want to think like that anymore. So they came up with complementary hermeneutics, and the idea there was that revelation in the New Testament complemented, it didn't contradict, which is what the old uh, covenant the allegorical interpretation would do. It didn't contradict the Old Testament, but it added new new information that kind of gave it a new twist. And that became known, that's that's been called complementary hermeneutics, and their view is called progressive dispensationalism. But when one Old Testament scholar, who's a covenant theologian, read their read their material when it first came out, they said, hmm. They're just amillennialists by another name. And this is a dominant view at Dallas Seminary right now. Of course, a lot of people don't like hearing that, and there are people who don't want any pastors talking about that from the pulpit. But if people don't say it, no, the people who are contributing good money to Dallas Seminary, thinking that Dallas Seminary is still teaching the same thing Lewis Berry Chafer taught, are being sold a bill of goods. Because Lisbury Chafer isn't even read by anybody at Dallas Seminary unless you happen to have a class with Dr. Leitner. Nobody reads Chafer anymore. He's to 20th century. Anyway, why go back there? So, 
about almost everybody in the theology department. I heard they just hired a new guy, and he's not progressive dispensationalist. But almost the whole Old Testament and New Testament department are progressive dispensationalists. English Bible is not. That's, that's the good department there. But um, uh, it's just swept away uh, Dallas Seminary. And it has to do with this, all this issue of hermeneutics interpretation. That's why I've spent so much time on this is because you have to, if you're a believer, you have to understand why you believe what you believe and that it's one thing just to say you believe in literal interpretation, but you have to understand what that really means, especially in contrast to a lot of the other stuff that is, that's going on today. So I'll come back and talk about uh, New Testament use of the Old Testament for, and its importance for hermeneutics next week. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Help us to see how you've worked throughout history to make sure that your truth is made clear and that uh, the truth of your word is never lost, but in negative volition it is often obscured. And we live in a day today when the church is being attacked by enemies on the outside and on the inside, and yet the people in the pew are often more in tune with the truth of your word than those in scholarly institutions. Father, we pray that we might not lose sight of the fact that all of this is designed not just to learn things, but to understand your word and its impact on our own lives more fully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.